Chapter 16 Captain and Chief The morning sunlight broke through the San Francisco Bay fog bank, throwing symmetrical shadows of the cell window bars across Quint's face. He woke from his sleep when the bright light touched his eyelids. For that moment, he didn't feel any pain, and the cool stone floor of the holding cell was just the right temperature. Moving to the bed would be more trouble than it's worth. To deal with the annoying sunbeams, Quint opted to turn his head to the side only an inch, to where the bars pulled in front of the white light. Quint found amusement in the perfect space between the bars. Two could cast their shadows over each of his eyes if he held still, and the sunlit warmth would touch the rest of his face. For the moment, he was the luckiest tenant of the U.S. Army Post's main guardhouse in the Presidio. His damaged right arm draped across his stomach. The dusty navy peacoat rested in a crumpled mess behind his head and shoulders. Quint smiled with the warmth on his face. It didn't take long for the pain to settle in. Not the pain from his arm, which swelled to double the size above the elbow. He learned to ignore that. There was a pain he couldn't ignore. The sting of regret drove into him with the force of a harpooner's spear, and it hurt. There were so many words he wanted to say to them those he let down. None more so than Maureen. Her loss didn't seem real. Maybe it was all a dream, and he would hear the familiar heavy clunk of the lock thrown open on the distant hallway door, followed by footsteps. She would appear in front of the cell with a breath of relieved disappointment, ready to take him home. After five years of marriage, 
Quint struggled to think of any time he stayed home for more than a week or two, instead choosing the sea over her. And yet, he always counted on her to be standing at the door of the cell. Not this time, though. He laid across the floor with the shadows of the bars resting on his eyes. The latch pulled open, making a heavy clunk echo down the hallway of chipped beige paint and steel bars. Quint kept his eyes closed and just listened to the series of footsteps falling on the checkerboard green and white patterned asbestos tiles. He tried to guess how many were coming. Sounds like three, but could be two. The three figures stopped in front of the cell and blocked the sunlight from the large barred window behind them. Quint opened one eye and saw the three silhouettes. He was more interested in the little particles of dust that floated in the beams of light, cutting across the figures looking at him. How long has he been here? I'm not sure, sir. We relieved the prior duty team at 0400 and he was already here. They must have gotten him last. Open this cell door right now before I make it so you're guarding a Korean latrine with the 91st on Monday. Yes, sir. The nervous fumbling of keys rattled against the lock, and the young military police officer pulled open the door to Quint's cage. Quint never moved. A Navy captain stepped forward into the cell. His gleaming appearance and impeccable uniform, highlighted by the four gold bars on the sleeves and shoulder boards of his Navy peacoat, he stood a striking contrast to the broken man laying on the ground before him. Captain Edward Woodyard knelt down next to Quint. Already annoyed at the sight of his breath exhaled into the chilled and damp air of the guardhouse, he now boiled with a reserved anger while looking at Quint's enlarged upper right arm. The bicep was now colored black with shades of purple from the internal bleeding. The captain leaned in closer and spoke under his breath. Hang in there, chief. I'm going to get you out of here. Quint opened his eyes and looked at the captain. They didn't exchange a word but understood each other. The captain pivoted to the two nervous MPs who stood outside the cell door and barked out. His words caused the two enlisted men to lock up and stand at attention. Sergeant! Yes, sir? Get on the phone with the infirmary. Get an ambulance down here right now. One of the military police officers took off in a sprint down the hallway, keeping his MP helmet from falling off with one hand and leaving the other standing next to the open cell door. Captain Woodyard stood up and walked over to him. You see that tattoo on this man's forearm, Corporal? The shaking young man looked down to Quint, and the sleeve of his shirt half pulled up on his good arm. The USS Indianapolis title resting over an eagle's wings, faded ink pigments now shining in the sunlight. That means this man has seen enough pain to last three of your lifetimes, and certainly doesn't need one more minute in your drunk tank with an injury like this. If anything, I repeat, anything happens to this man, I will be back here to blame somebody. Sir, yes sir! The corporal snapped to attention, and the high-ranking officer pushed his way past and stormed down the hallway. Once again, the sun warmed Quint's face. The captain is here, waiting for you outside with a car, chief, said the nurse with a slight knock on the doorframe to Quint's white-walled room of the hospital. Quint knew it was time to face the music. He had been absent without leave now for over twenty days. This was, even by his admittance, quite the stint, and repercussions were a certainty. He sat on the edge of the bed and gathered himself for one more minute. 
no use rushing. Whatever was going to happen was likely already decided. Quint stepped out into the cool air for the first time since the ambulance drivers collected him from the guardhouse three days ago. His right arm hung in a sling and tucked against his abdomen. He pulled his coat over his shoulders a little tighter and held it closed with his left hand. Quint still found it amusing to see palm trees while feeling the cold air bite at his skin. So goes the giant fraud that is San Francisco to a New Englander. He once thought, upon hearing orders to be stationed out of California, that life would be nothing but sun and warmth. A naive kid, not knowing what the future had for him. The black 1951 Ford Custom Deluxe sedan with government plates idled at the curb. As soon as Quint hit the steps of the Presidio Hospital, the high-gloss metallic doors opened. Quint tried to spruce himself up with his free hand and looked down at his sullen dungarees and scuffed-up work boots. I'm gonna have to apologize, Captain Woodyard. I haven't got a cover, or I would render a salute. The captain stepped up to Quint and looked him over. When I heard they found you alive, I was relieved. I heard about Maureen. I went to the house, and you were gone. Chief, I am sorry for your loss. Thank you for your concern, Captain. I wish things were different. It is what it is. The captain paused and looked into Quint's eyes. Quint wore a steel facade and looked away to the idling car. A Navy driver waited by the opened back door. The captain was never great at expressing his condolences to the families and spouses of those who died under his command. Even with plenty of practice over the years, he felt frustrated that his words failed him once again while standing in front of another broken man. It's a little warmer inside the car, chief. We need to talk. It's out of my hands this time. The Ford engine bellowed out a cloud of exhaust and the government vehicle rumbled away from the curb. Captain Woodyard settled into his seat and reached forward towards an open briefcase full of files. While thumbing through the papers, he reached up and gently tapped the driver's seat. Take us down Mason Street and stop at the Coast Guard station. We'll walk from there. Yes, sir. Quint knew this was bad. When they want to walk with you, that means there's a problem. Before, the captain would just offer him a cup of coffee and drop him off at his little shop on Mare Island. They had an understanding, and Quint never got caught. But this time he pushed the limits, and it went public. For the last five years, Quint reached the rank of chief and settled into a job created just for him, a one-man repair shop of M1 Garand rifles that came back from the war. Five days a week of changing out spare parts, the odd forging and experimentation with custom stocks and various barrel lengths was just a cover for what really drove him. It allowed him to sink further into the madness, further into the failures and losses, all the time in the world to dwell on them while resisting the need to move on. Those sideburns are getting a little past regulation, Chief. Yes, Captain, I concur. I was looking forward to a shave back on base. The Captain, amused with the answer, looked over to Quint while pulling a folder out of the briefcase. You expect me to buy that one, sailor? That I do, sir. They both exchanged a sly smile. The captain appreciated the traditional naval back and forth between a superior and his subordinate. 
The report says spiral fracture of the upper humerus, partial tear and stretching to the radial nerve. This reads like an autopsy report. What happened out there? Nothing too serious, sir. Got into a little bit of a shoving match is all, and... Drop the act, chief. You have no idea how... The captain interrupted himself and took a breath. <sighs> Honestly, chief, you and I are both tired. We're out of time. This has the admiral and all those shiny pants who sit around him in a huff. Quint knew what was coming as the captain reached forward and pulled out the newspaper. The captain handed the front page from last week's San Francisco Chronicle Sunday evening edition over to Quint. The headline in bold black letters screamed from the page. Navy Man Kills Three Monsters Off Alcatraz Below the headline was a black-and-white photo of Quint in the well of a small fishing boat standing over three dead great white sharks. Quint's old Navy work hat with the yellow lettering USS Indianapolis CA-35 visible. The brim obscured part of his face. Now, if that wasn't bad enough for the Admiral to get this delivered to his house on Sunday evening, this falls onto his desk Monday morning. Quint had a half-smile when the captain tossed the San Francisco Examiner front page on top of the other paper. The same bold black lettering splashed across the page. Navy Fisherman Snags Three Sharks in One Day Another photo of Quint unloading his massive fishing rod and reel, with three white sharks of ten to twelve feet, stacked in the boat's well. I have to say, I'm impressed at the size of the catch, but the Admiral definitely wasn't. Yes, sir, I'm sure of that. Quint looked up from the papers. He had already seen them earlier in the week and didn't care. There was a funeral to arrange. He tried to push off and tell those photographers to clear out, even threatened to throw one of them right into the water, with the fancy bulbs and camera equipment included. Those pushy bastards got off two flashes before I could chase them away. I never intended for this to make the papers, Captain. I'm sure of that, Chief. I'm sure of that. The rows of palm trees changed to sand and a parade field of rich green grass when the car took a turn and started down Mason Street. Quint looked out at San Francisco Bay. The slight chop peppered the water with little whitecaps. They want to know what you are doing on the front page of the papers and not on a ship somewhere. One of those Academy pencil necks trying to make a name for himself checked your records and found you AWOL, then sounded the alarm. I tried all my tricks, but they want you brought in for a captain's mast. The car slowed and drifted to the side of the road, brought to a halt in a slight squeaking of drum brakes. Coast Guard Station Number 310, Presidio, Captain. Very well, driver. Quint folded up the newspapers and handed them back to the captain. You don't want to keep those? It's not every day a man lands on the front page of the Chronicle. I got a feeling this won't be the last time I'll be on a newspaper headline, sir. The captain took the papers back and looked at them before filing them into his briefcase. Well, my kid will like them. He's fascinated with sharks. Quint scoffed to himself at the thought of sharks bringing fascination to anyone, but bit his tongue. He respected Captain Woodyard and all he did for him after returning from Guam with the rest of the survivors back in 46. The good captain had bailed him out of many altercations and many AWOL trips, 
that Quint liked to call his little escapes. If anyone was going to deliver the bad news, he would rather it be Woodyard. Let's take a walk, Chief. I have a patrol boat waiting at Torpedo Wharf to take me back to the island. Let's see if you are going to board it with me. The driver opened up the door for the captain, and Quint reached over with his left hand and opened his own door. As he stepped out of the car, he bumped his right shoulder on the doorframe and winced at the pain. They gave him enough codeine tablets to last him for a while. It felt like he needed another round already. The slight headwind whipped off the bay and met both men with a push as they started their walk across Chrissy Field. Quint looked ahead towards the white Coast Guard station and its weathered red roof. Maybe he should have joined that outfit instead of the Navy. Quint pondered how life would be different had that been the decision. I had lunch with Admiral Nimitz two weeks ago, and he still asks about you. Every time I see him. How's my boy doing, he asks. He's getting older and forgets how often he tells the same stories. So as an exemplary officer, my job is to sit and act like I never heard it before. There he goes telling me all about how Admiral Spruance went to the Base 18 Hospital at Guam to pin Purple Hearts on the Indy survivors, and when he got to the end of the line, he had one extra. You skipped the whole show business and was found wading in hip-deep water on the North Island, spearfishing. He laughs himself silly at the thought of Spruance calling your name and standing there looking around. Quint watched the seagulls dip and dive over the water. He listened to the captain with a patient ear. It's been five years, Chief. Since you boys arrived back home, every one of your crew has left the Navy, except you. You stayed, and Admiral Nimitz respected that. That's my boy, Captain. See to it he's taken care of. My standing order from Nimitz. Well, I tried, Chief, and I'm still trying. I got you set up at that little shop rebuilding M1s and tried to keep you off the radar, but this time they left me with little to maneuver with. Captain, this isn't your fault. The Admiral always treated me well, and he stuck his neck out for Captain McVeigh. I always respected that. We all looked at the Navy different after what they did to McVeigh. The men reached the sandy paved path in front of the Coast Guard station and turned left. The red steel of the Golden Gate Bridge glowed in the noon sun. Some of the last remnants of a thick morning fog bank had yet to burn off and clung to the hillside while cutting across the bridge support cables. Quint watched the cars and trucks stream across the bridge in the distance. The captain and the chief continued their walk. Torpedo Wharf stretched into the blue waters of the bay. A few local fishermen sat in the shadows of the wooden pylons, waiting with their lines cast. The war is in Korea, chief. The USS Rochester is just about finished with repairs, and I'm taking her out there. Just say the word, and you'll be on her with me. I could use the best gunner's mate in the Navy. You are a legend on the Bofors, and I wouldn't want anyone else protecting my bridge more so than you, Chief Quint. Quint remained silent and shifted the strap of his arm sling that pulled on his neck. With Admiral Nimitz retired, we lost our pull at the top. Aboard my ship, I can cover for you. It's either that, or I can process your paperwork and get you a medical discharge effective immediately. They are going to take you to Captain's Mast, and I can't control what happens there. 
Under my command, you'll make senior chief within the month. Their footfalls echoed on the ancient timbers of the wharf. In the distance, the engines of the 78-foot Higgins PT boat lit off in a loud rumble. The crew spotted the four gold stripes of the captain's shoulder bars and the khaki fabric of the Navy officer's hat approaching. Quint looked underneath the Golden Gate's shadow to the open Pacific Ocean horizon and beyond. You are a good man, Captain Woodyard, and I want to thank you for the help. My fight is not out there anymore. The Lord only knows what you men went through. I can't even imagine. But you have to move on. There are 878 men that would love to be standing where you are right now. Quint nodded and appreciated what the captain was trying to do. Aye, aye, captain. A junior petty officer climbed up from the ladder and hurried over, locking into a perfect position of attention and snapping a hand salute. Engines are up to temperature, Captain. Awaiting your departure. May I take your briefcase? Captain Woodyard returned his salute and handed over the briefcase. The petty officer collected it and hustled back to the waiting PT boat. You want to ride back to Mare Island? I can put you on a plane, train, anywhere you want to go. No, sir, I think I'll walk from here and take my time. You do that, Chief. It's been a pleasure serving with you. Consider yourself discharged, and you can pick up any personal items from your shop when you are ready. I wish things were different, Chief. I really do. Respectfully request one more favor, sir. Anything. It's the least we owe you. I'd like to keep my rifle. The captain paused and looked out to the chopped surface of the bay. You can't kill them all, Chief. Quint returned a nod of approval. Yeah. The captain fastened the top button of his navy peacoat and turned the collar up to shelter his neck from the impending boat ride's headwind. Take anything you want, sailor. I'll sign it out personally. Thank you, sir. Be safe out there, wherever there may be, the captain said while reaching out to Quint. The two men shook hands and parted ways. Quint stayed at the end of the wharf and watched the crew cast off the mooring lines. The PT boat rumbled away. The captain, removing his officer's hat and choosing to stand tall and proud, while the boat cut the water and banked its way towards Mare Island Navy shipyard across the bay. Quint turned to head back into town. For the first time in his life, he found himself homeless. Chapter 17 the offer. His strides grew wider and faster. The traffic and pedestrian bodies seemed to drift in slow motion. That palpable sting of failure and guilt hammering his mind to a steady beat. The waterfront streets took forever to navigate. The people couldn't get out of the way fast enough. Only one way to push back the sting. To suppress the pain. He had to get back to his boat. Quint tossed back another two codeine tablets, but the pain was not physical. They would have no effect. The boat. There he could find the only solace available. He made his way past the endless rows of shipping piers, the trucks full of cargo, and the laughing sailors mooring up their ships. The thought of Maureen waiting for him all those nights turned to images of Herbie Robinson reaching out from below.
The collection of dog tags falling away became his arm breaking across the wooden arm wrestling table. Under the shadow of the Bay Bridge, Quint continued ahead and saw Troy punching at the large tiger shark. The sting turned to images of his father, the gaff hook, the head of the marlin. By the time he reached Mission Bay and the half-built piers of new construction, Quint was sweating and stumbling. It had been too long since his last taste of sweet ignorance. His hands shook, his thighs numbed and weak. Quint stumbled down the gangplank of the small pier off Berry Street and onto a dilapidated 25-foot wooden boat. The stain and stench of dried shark blood painted the cracked decking. Quint stepped down into the vessel and lost his balance, catching himself on the fighting chair bolted down to the center of the deck. The fighting chair swiveled with his momentum, allowing him to maintain his balance and push into the wheelhouse. Inside the abused cabin, one lone table of tools and dirty engine rags stood across from a simplified steering wheel and throttle control. His blurred vision found the small collection of glass bottles in the corner, each half-empty of liquid relief. Quint took a bottle and raised it to his lips. He pulled the alcohol into his body and felt the immediate effects. The burn of the throat, the warmth on his brain, the calming of the mind. Most important, the fading of memories. The broken man leaned up against the open door of the wheelhouse and shifted his right arm in the sling. Raising the bottle with his left hand, he took in another drink. Mr. Quint? Quint looked over his right shoulder at the voice. Behind him, a man stood on the small pier looking down at him. I'm looking for a Captain Quint. I was told I could find him here. The man, dressed in a slick gray suit and thin navy blue tie, shifted his tan overcoat and put his hands in his pockets. Quint placed the bottle on the table in the pilot house and turned to step out into the open. Yeah, I'm Quint. What do you want? You're a hard man to find, Mr. Quint. I suppose this is my lucky day. The harbormaster said this was your boat, so I've been by here off and on for the last few days, and what do you know? I finally found you. The polished eastern accent isn't what made Quint uncomfortable at first, nor was it the fancy clothes and city slicker shoes. The man was the same age as Quint, early thirties, well-combed black hair and a rehearsed smile. Quint paused at the confidence the man carried. Nobody on the up-and-up should be that confident in life. Are you FBI? Police? What did I do now? Quint said with a wry smile, the effects of the alcohol already loosening him up. The man laughed and took out a pack of cigarettes from his pocket. I'm about as far from that as you could imagine. He gestured to Quint with the pack of cigarettes, and Quint responded with a silent shake of the head. The man shrugged and stuffed them back into his pocket while lighting the cigarette in his mouth with a fluid motion and the click of a Zippo lighter. Quint pulled himself up the small three-step ladder with his good hand. He stepped back on the pier to approach the stranger, who breathed the cloud of smoke and looked at the right arm in the sling. I see you got banged up, Mr. Quint. A little. You still going to fish? Who wants to know? The man let out a polished laugh and took another drag of his cigarette. Every mannerism, 
movement, and stance of the feet appeared rehearsed and purposeful. I forgot to introduce myself. How could I? My name is Larry Vaughn. I traveled from a little island back east called Amity. Larry Vaughn reached out with his right hand, and Quint raised his left. Vaughn smiled, snatched the right back, and reached out with his left hand to execute a firm, opposite handshake. Amity's a dump. Nothing but skills and campers there, said Quint. Not anymore. We established a township, refurbished the old town hall, even built a full-service gas station. There's not even electricity on that island. You've been out of the loop. The last section of submarine cable got laid back in November from Nantucket to a cable junction. They're working on the line to Amity now. Should have electricity by summer. Sounds like you folks been busy then, Mr. Vaughn. Vaughn nodded his head in another exhale of smoke. It's the right time to build. Brand new decade. The country's never been better. My investors and I are looking to make Amity into a summer resort. Quint laughed at the absurd idea. You are wasting your money. Nobody is going to want to get all the way out there. If all things go as scheduled, utilities, roads, motels, we'll even have our own ferry terminal built. Ferries to and from the mainland in about 10 years, maybe 15 tops. When that happens, tourists will be there. I can guarantee you that. Quint stood back and looked Vaughn over once again. So what makes you leave all that fancy business to fly across the country? The census registry had you last listed in Barnstable County before the war, Mr. Quint. So I imagine you're familiar with the area? Yeah, lots of people are. Vaughn took a long drag on the last few centimeters of tobacco. He flicked the cigarette butt into the water and stepped forward through the final cloud of warm smoke. Vaughn reached into his overcoat and pulled out a folded newspaper. I have come here to hire you, Mr. Quint. I could use a man of your talents. Quint looked down at the wrinkled San Francisco Chronicle front page being handed to him. In the description under the large photo of himself standing over the three dead great white sharks, the name Captain Quint had been circled in red ink. Thank you very much for listening to episode 37 of the Jaws Obsession. This has been an audio recording of chapters 16 and 17 from the Book of Quint, performed by Rick Starpoli, directed by Tiffany Starpoli, produced and mixed by Scott Fitzgerald, recorded at Rockbox Recording and Production, Rochester, New York, written by Ryan Daco. There is still time to sponsor the extremely limited first printing of the Book of Quint. All sponsors will be receiving the Book of Quint after October 22nd, 2022. Please go to jawsob.com, bookofquint.com, or you can go right to the description of this very broadcast on your listening platform and follow the links to the Indiegogo campaign site to become a sponsor for the Book of Quint. The first printing will allow us to present the complete book for a full review by those who have ownership to these characters from Jaws. This is a very important time to see where this story goes, to see if we can expand on the Jaws universe. Now that we have heard this reading from the Book of Quint, 
Let's go and watch the greatest movie of all time, Jaws, over the weekend. And how does this change a very pivotal scene in the movie? You can email me here at JawsOB2025 at gmail.com with new information and details into the background to the characters of Jaws. Exciting times are ahead. We will be back here Tuesday, September 6th for another episode, episode 38 of the Jaws Recession, where we will talk about how significant just two chapters from the Book of Quint are to the movie Jaws and reveal more to the story and the performances in the original movie Jaws. Another special thanks to Scott Fitzgerald and Tiffany and Rick for helping us out here at the Jaws Obsession and bringing two chapters to life to show the potential of what we have here. Very exciting times. Thank you very much to them and thank you very much for your time in listening to this episode. I look forward to talking to you more for episode 38. Until next week, farewell and adieu, and show me the way to go home. 